Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. Good afternoon. My name is Kim Posnett. I'm a partner in the investment banking division. Welcome. Thank you all for coming. I am truly honored today to be joined by my dear friend, Ariana Huffington. Let's start at the beginning. Tell us about your childhood. What were you like as a kid? Um, did you want to become an entrepreneur then? How did you start to think about entrepreneurship? So I, I was born in Greece, and um, I was very blessed to have a mother who, even though... I was born in a one-bedroom apartment who had no money, always made us feel, my sister and me, that we could aim for the stars, we could aim for our dreams, and that if we failed along the way, she wouldn't love us any less. So it was really the combination of uh, unconditional loving, which I think is the greatest gift a mother can give to a child, and also the recognition that failure is not the opposite of success, that every life includes failures along the way. She used to say, failure is not the opposite of success, it's a stepping stone to success. And I love that because especially for women, if I can address the women in the room, we tend to be more perfectionist and more reluctant to take risks because we may fail along the way. So giving ourselves that freedom to fail along the way is incredibly liberating. So tell us, um, the Huffington Post, this was before Twitter, um, and you know, digital and media hadn't quite fully mixed yet. Tell us what your ambitions were for the site when you founded it, and what were your aspirations then? So that was May 2005, and I, I could see that um, conversations were moving online. And uh, yet a lot of people that I admired, I felt were never going to have a blog. Um, and therefore, they were not going to be part of the conversation. So I wanted to create a place which was going to be both a journalism, but also a place for multiple people to express their views about anything, from the events of the day to um, the arts, uh, religion, um, parenting, everything. And so... When we launched on May 9th, I was able to attract an enormous amount of people blogging on the Huffington Post, you know, ranging from Larry David and Ellen DeGeneres to Walter Cronkite. And somehow we elevated blogging. That was the first thing we did. You know, blogging at the time was perceived as something that people who couldn't get a job were doing in the basements of their parents' apartment. <laughs> so we have... Uh, whether it's blogging, tweeting, Facebooking, um, communicating directly uh, with your customers, your consumers, your readers has become an accepted fact. But when we launched, it was something very new. Tell us um, how social media has changed the news from your standpoint, whether it's Facebook, whether it's Twitter, just all the social media outlets. So here's my biggest concern about what's happening. And this is that we are now living in what is called the attention economy. Like businesses monetize our attention. And unfortunately, they have an incredible way. They have literally thousands of engineers whose job is to hijack your attention. 
So we need to be incredibly careful at protecting our attention, setting boundaries to our relationship with technology. Uh, look, for example, at Instagram likes or Facebook likes. If you um, post a picture of your salad at lunch and then you <laughs> compulsively watch how many likes it gets, <laughs> it's just not a good use of your time, trust me. <laughs> First of all, just measure how long it takes somebody to like something. It takes less than a second. It's sort of an irrelevant um, indication of approval, and yet people obsess with it. And listen, technology is amazing. I mean, all of us here celebrate it. We wouldn't be here without it. But we are now at this inflection point, where if we don't set boundaries, we are going to um, really sacrifice our humanity at the altar of technology. Because if you think of it, our attention is everything that leads to our creativity, uh, the best ideas we have, uh, the ability to reconnect with ourselves. And all that is lost when we are constantly at the mercy of endless notifications and buzzing and everything. So, you know, trust me, you're going to find out what happened in the world. You don't need to be constantly notified. I mean, ending these notifications, protecting your own attention, and realizing that it takes protection because it's otherwise it's your own willpower against thousands of engineers who know how to hijack your attention. Incidentally, you know how they hijack your attention? I've, I've talked to many neuroscientists now. It's a little bit what they do with um, jukeboxes, the whole idea of jukeboxes and of uh, uh, slot machines. The whole idea of a slot machine is what they call variable intermittent rewards. So you don't know when you're going to get a reward or not. So you keep like checking texting and checking social media because there may be something good. Most of the time there isn't. But it's, <laughs> but it's reinforced by the intermittent rewards. by the intermittent yeah. rewards. So it's, it's really, in, in, I highly recommend that you go to Time Well Spent and read all the neuroscience behind what's happening. And unfortunately, a lot of these social media companies base their business models on monetizing your attention. So they're going to be incredibly smart at hijacking your attention because that's what is really the critical factor in their bottom line. So, so this is a big aspect of Thrive Global and attention and protecting your time um, and wellness generally. Tell us how you came up with the idea first, and then we'll get into more of the conversation on well, sleep and attention. I came up with the idea, um, well, it started in 2007, two years after I'd launched the Huffington Post, when I actually collapsed from burnout, exhaustion, and sleep deprivation, hit my head on my desk, broke my cheekbone. And that was the beginning of my really studying the whole epidemic of burnout, mm. because burnout is an epidemic. And uh, I realized that we are all living under this delusion that in order to succeed, we have to burn out. And increasingly, companies are realizing that their bottom line is improved when their employees are actually recharged, that it affects productivity, engagement, um, attrition, that we now have the data that um, when employees are burnt out, they are 32% more likely to want to change jobs. So, and recruitment. So every metric 
is affected. So you, you travel the world talking about the importance of sleep and wellness. When you talk to business leaders, how many of them generally agree with the philosophy on the importance of sleep and wellness? And how many are you trying to really change their mentality? I think we're at a real inflection point. I think we're at a real moment of transition. You have people who are like ahead of the curve. You have people who are beginning to realize that they have not been doing things the way they can be doing them, which would make them more effective, healthier, and happier. And there are people who are still resisting mm. and who still feel that um, the old way of congratulating people for working 24-7 or being always on or, you know, the little sayings, you snooze, you lose, I'll sleep when I'm dead. <laughs> so you have the whole spectrum, which is really what is so exciting, that we are living in this period of transition. I mean, more people who are coming along and realizing that there is no trade-off between well-being and productivity. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us um, some of the biggest misconceptions about sleep. So we've talked about what's the right amount of sleep to ha you know, have optimal performance. So sleep, the sleep science is a very new science. The first scientific sleep center was founded at Stanford in 1970. But uh, all scientists agree on one thing, unless you have a genetic mutation, and about one and a half percent of the population does. If you have a genetic mutation, you do great on three or four hours sleep. I know I don't have a genetic <laughs> mutation because I need eight hours to feel a hundred percent. So the majority of us need seven to nine hours. Whether you need seven or eight or nine is individual. You can test it. You cannot train yourself to have a genetic mutation. <laughs> you either have it or you don't, because you have people who say, who act as though, you know, they're going to train themselves not to sleep. Yeah. And, and then you see the impact on their health, I mean, the impact on, on our immune system, on every, uh, every aspect of our health, as well as on our creativity and productivity is enormous. But it's changing, you know, I think, I, I love seeing the shift in the culture. Can we shift for a minute to culture in Silicon Valley? Of course. Okay. So um, everyone knows you're on the board of Uber. That must be a fascinating board to be on right now. Could you tell us, to the extent appropriate, um, uh, um, tell us about that experience to the extent you can? First of all, I think for anybody who wants to be on a board, it's kind of interesting because most boards don't take an enormous amount of time unless there is a crisis, and then suddenly they take an enormous mm -hmm. amount of time. And that's what happened with Uber. I got very involved right after Susan Fowler, an engineer at Uber, wrote a blog post about sexual harassment in the company. I was the only woman on the board. That was in February. And I felt it was my responsibility to get really involved for the employees to know that um, I was determined to uh, conduct a full investigation, that we're going to hold management's feet to the fire. So that was really the beginning of my greater involvement, which led to us bringing in Eric Holder to do a full investigation. A few weeks ago, we adopted all the recommendations. We let go um, of about 26 employees who had been involved in different aspects of unprofessional behavior. And um, then, um, as you may have heard, a group of investors asked Travis Kalanick, the CEO, to resign. So now we are in the process of also 
recruiting a new CEO, but we're very lucky in that we have three great operators um, who run the US, Europe, and um, Asia. And I think that's been partly responsible for the fact that despite all the crisis and all the problems, Uber has been growing. Um, you know, in the number of cities, we just had a fifth billionth ride, uh, made a lot of changes in our relationship with drivers, including uh, allowing tipping for the first time. Tell us um, how you think the Valley will mature as it relates to these topics of building inclusive workforces and diversity. I think one of the problems with the Valley is that every company is very concerned um, to bury any problems. Mm. You know, people engage in some kind of unprofessional behavior, sexual harassment or other unprofessional behavior. They are quietly dismissed. Nobody knows why they were dismissed because they are allowed to resign, often with some kind of payment, mm. severance payment, so that they can go quietly. Then they're rehired by another company in the Valley where they, where they proceed to act in the same way. And, you know, there are so many instances of that. And so I think the culture of protecting a company's reputation has meant that it's been very hard to actually be upfront about the problems mm -hmm. and therefore have some real changes. The assumption that if you're a top performer, anything is forgiven. Um, I called it at one of the all hands at Uber, um, protecting the brilliant jerks. And our goal, as I said, at Uber has to be no brilliant jerks allowed. You know, the fact that you are brilliant and a top performer does not, does not forgive um, unprofessional behavior. But it has forgiven unprofessional behavior for very long and in very many companies. Mm. And I think the recognition, I think once a few top performers have been fired, uh, the message is getting out there that that's not going to protect you. You know, delivering isn't going to protect you. And I think that's changing the culture, and that's another thing I'm extremely interested in, since everything I'm doing now is about a culture shift, kind of disrupting the way we work and live. Um, Uber is an amazing case study. With that, could you all join me in thanking Ariana? Such an amazing conversation. This podcast was recorded on July 12th. 2017. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient nor to constitute 
Such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.